I studied ethnic studies and history in, in college. I came out of college feeling like I really knew this stuff. And it just took a couple of years of teaching to completely cause insecurity and uncertainty in my own beliefs that I'd worked hard to like arrive at. It's just critical for us to be authentic and address the issues that our kids are facing boldly and courageously. It's Taj of the and welcome ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All The Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This will be year 17 in the classroom for me. And this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Because we know, like you know, that education simply does not get the attention that it deserves. If you're tuning in for the first time on our YouTube channel, if you enjoy what you see, please think about hitting that subscribe button and that thumbs up so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. If you're listening to the podcast on the go, we appreciate you. Please take a moment when you can to rate us and review us. We're trying to get those reviews up so that we can hopefully pop up in more educators' feeds and suggested podcasts and all that. Jeff, did you know that um, we have very recently started to have our very first supporters and contributors to all of the above? I did know, Manuel. I believe those are people that have probably uh, found us on Venmo at AOTA Show or on Cash App at AOTA Show or maybe even gone to our anchor page and uh, subscribe there. Could it, could it be any of those three possibilities? It could be, Jeff. You know, we've been doing the show for a very, very long time, and uh, we've been operating on basically a $0 budget. Everything's been coming out of pocket, our, our cameras and our, our uh, hosting costs and all kinds of stuff. So we fully, fully appreciate those of you who are contributing to the cause so that we could keep the show going and, and expand it and, and build it up. And we'll have more information for those of you who are um, considering supporting our show. We'll have more information about that as this episode goes on. But Jeff, also, I want to know, um, do you realize there are a lot of new eyes upon us for this episode and new new listeners out there who are part of, part of a, a nation, uh, a too dope nation, Jeff, I want you to tell us about today's agenda and explain what that's all about. Yeah, well, we want to officially welcome the Two Dope Nation to the All the Above Nation, uh, a yeah. merging of, of benevolent, uh, fantastic educators of justice uh, universes, if you will. Um, but today's guests are two incredible educators. We have Gerardo Munoz, we have Kevin Adams, otherwise known as the Two Dope Teachers, uh, who run, of course, the amazing Two Dope Teachers podcast coming out of Denver, Colorado. They're Denver Public Schools teachers. Um, they are men of color in a profession where uh, men of color are a rarity. And um, they're, they have brought just an incredible sense of voice and interest to these important discussions about education and uh, the importance of having educator voice in our public discourse. Um, so, you know, it's funny, we, we kind of joke that like, they're, they're sort of like us, the mirror reflection on the other side of the Rocky Mountains. Um, and we have them with us on today's episode. So we're going to get into some great discussions about, you know, kind of reflecting back on what happened this spring, looking ahead and kind of continuing the, the fight for educational justice. 
dope. I cannot wait for that conversation. But of course, our show also brings listeners and viewers recent news and headlines in the world of education because it's hard to keep up. There's so much going on. So up next is our Do Now segment where we will take a look at two recent headlines in our world of education. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks for watching all the above. We'd love having you as a part of this conversation with us. Now, we work hard to bring you an unstandardized take on education every week, but of course, it takes resources to bring that to you. So, there are some new exciting ways that you can be a part of supporting all the above and helping us continue to expand our audience. All you need to do is go to anchor.fm slash AOTA. That's anchor.fm slash AOTA. And you can sign up to subscribe to our show every month. Any bit you can give will help us help you. Yeah, so we want to shout out our founding supporters on Anchor. Shout out to Megan, to Ricardo, to Rodney, to John, to Danny, to Eden, to Larry, to Mimi. Shout out to all of you. We very, very much appreciate your contributions. We love y'all. Thank you for the support. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. This is where we take a look at recent headlines in education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, it's 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 my favorite way that we do do now, so I have to say. I'm a little bit biased. Um, but we, we have a lexicon. You know, we're going to get into some, some key vocabulary, some key terms and concepts to help us ground today's discussion of juicy issues in education. Okay, dope. Some nice uh, summer learning. Let's get that, that exactly. vocabulary going. Jeff, what's yeah, the man. first lexicon term for today? All right, man. Well, today's first term is the term nah. Hmm. Nah or like nah? I that's a that's an existential question right there. It matters. I think, I think it matters. it's more I think it's more of a nah. Okay, okay. Who's saying nah, Jeff? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> the um, this story of course is brought to us uh, by some good reporting from John Fensterwald uh, at EdSource. Um, and the folks who are saying nah are the California Teachers Association, which is the, the statewide union here in California. Um, and with the return of distance learning uh, looking more and more likely, um, regardless of how we return for the upcoming school year, the California Teachers Association, or CTA, has argued that school districts lack the authority to force teachers to do live online instruction or to record lessons for later use. Now, the CTA is pointing to a 1976 law that provides privacy protections for teachers. It prevents unauthorized recording in a classroom um, and requires a teacher's and principal's consent for the use of any listening or recording device in the classroom. Um, the CTA is claiming that the law applies to distance learning, both asynchronous recording and live synchronous instruction. Um, and that if a district wants to have that as the policy, they need the consent of every individual teacher and every individual principal in order to implement a district-wide remote instruction policy. Now, of course, the law coming from 1976, uh, you know, obviously has nothing to do with COVID and our current distance learning context. Um, the law was originally written to prohibit students and adults from recording activities in a classroom without the teacher's permission and said that such an intrusion, quote, disrupts and impairs the teaching process and discipline in the elementary and secondary schools and, at such, and such use is prohibited. 
Now, there's a lot of folks who are pushing back against this, um, and uh, a, a quote by attorney Gregory Dennis, who represents school districts, said there's really no basis for applying a law protecting teachers from the impact of unauthorized classroom recordings to distance learning in this context, and said, quote, in our present COVID-19 environment, one can hardly claim that synchronous video instruction as part of a distance learning teaching model is disruptive to teaching when it is the very method being used to teach. So, Manuel, our uh, state teachers union is saying, nah, and some other folks are saying, yes. So what do you think? Uh, what's your take here? All right, so I mean, I think it's obvious that we have to have some live instruction. I, I think everyone, mostly everyone could agree at this point that some level of live instruction has to happen if we return, when we return to distance learning this fall, especially for the younger kids and especially in certain subjects like math, uh, for example. However, I fully, fully support the CTA using this law as a perhaps bargaining chip or negotiation strategy because we are facing a time where teachers, teachers have always been underpaid and underappreciated in my view. And now with distance learning being the reality in the midst of a pandemic, I think that so much is being expected of teachers without very much critical analysis of in totality what this all means. So teachers, of course, are dealing with the fact that they, many of them have their own children that might be learning from home. Many of them have uh, their own personal family members and, and relatives and friends who have been affected by this pandemic and the economic crisis. There's looming budget cuts for sure. And teachers know that the future is very uncertain when it comes to our compensation and when it comes to just having a job. So to, to pile on new requirements without fully supporting teachers, I think is, is something that needs to be slowed down. So if the CTA is using this as a way to sort of slow down this rush to like full you know expectation of teachers doing this and teachers doing that, then I fully support that. I am tired of teachers being treated like superheroes. And what I mean by that is, Teachers are treated like they are just supposed to go above and beyond and supposed to, you know, turn to just make magic out of a, a, a terrible situation. And in reality, we are professionals and we need to be treated like professionals. If there's going to be an expectation of live instruction or synchronous instruction, there needs to be training on that. I have not yet been trained on what a live lesson looks like, at least on what a good live lesson looks like. This whole summer could have been spent preparing teachers for the inevitability of returning to distance learning. Instead, we see all these plans out there for or for rushing back into the school building and so much is being done without teacher input. It's just, to me, ridiculous. So if the CTA could use this as a way to put the brakes on new expectations being placed on teachers, I support that. I don't think the CTA is really like super, super um, passionate about this idea of not having any requirements for live instruction. I think the CTA and the, and the good folks um, at all levels of the CTA know that some level of live instruction has to happen, but we can't just rush into these new expectations of teachers without having a real critical analysis of, of all the weight that's being placed on teachers' sh uh, shoulders right now. So I fully support that. I wish I had gotten some summer training on how to run effective live lessons, but I have not. So to be required to do a live lesson and not be trained in it, like we don't do that to other professions. So, I mean, what, what are we really doing here? 
All right, so Manuel, I have a couple of takes on that. One, I'm really glad you spoke to the sort of superhero point about teachers because all the time, uh, teaching is one of those professions that like so infuriatingly is both like respected and also routinely disrespected, right? Like people are like, oh, I love what you do. I could never do that. That's so noble and honorable. But then they don't want to pay taxes to, you know, to fund right. schools, right? And pay teachers, uh, you know, a good professional wage. Um, and, you know, folks vote against, uh, you know, things that actually support good public education. Right. And then and then we heap on top of schools and teachers all of these massive, you know, responsibilities to correct the ills of our ruthless capitalist society. So period. End of sentence on that one. Thank you for, for making that point. I will say, though, this I'm deeply bothered by the CTA stance on this. And it, it I think we're seeing in this moment a sense of national awakening right now around how certain types of unions do things that are just flagrantly against the the public interest, right? And right now we're seeing that with police unions, right? Where police do, and of course the scale here is different, I, I will admit, right? Um, but police push over an elderly man in Buffalo, New York, and then the whole department wants to protest when the officers who did that are, you know, minimally punished, right? And so, and people say, well, what kind of ridiculous, you know, entity behaves this way, right? Where, and says its interest is squarely against the interest and welfare of the people. And I think this is a stance, frankly, where the teachers union is putting itself squarely against the interests of the people. And here's why I say that. The reality is, especially for younger students, there is no meaningful asynchronous learning that's taking place. For kindergartners, first graders, second graders, there's just such little actual learning that can happen for those students without live instruction because they don't have enough independence and enough skill sets just developmentally to be able to navigate you know, the tools that we would um, you know, expect older students to be able to do with at least some measure of independence, right? So that's a huge swath of our, of our most vulnerable students that we're just essentially writing off by saying, we're not going to do this. Like that's just, that's an unacceptable stance to take. And the reality is for many of our older students, live instruction is incredibly important. Learning is a social process. Learning is not just you know, about reading something on a page and internalizing it, right? Like people construct meaning through relationships and context building with other people. That's how human beings learn. We all know this because the very earliest examples we have of this with every human being on earth are like holding a child and the child points at something and we tell the child that thing has a name. It's called a tree or it's called a car or it's called a light. Right. And we help them practice the meaning of that word and we explore their curiosities with them together. That fundamentally doesn't change in terms of how people learn. They construct meaning with others. Live instruction is important because it creates the social context in which students can learn. Now, the issue you brought up at the end there about the lack of training, you're 100 percent right on that. It is shameful that states and districts have not, um, you know, have not done enough to put into place adequate plans, particularly this summer, to train teachers. We have summer school going on everywhere. My vote would be cancel summer school. We're not going to accomplish anything good with it anyways. And let's spend all that time and money actually preparing our teachers and our principals and our schools to function well 
in a distance or hybrid setting that we're going to be in this fall. So I'll get off my, my soapbox now, but this one yeah, got man, me Yeah, man, you were on that soapbox for a minute, man. It sounds like you really hate the unions, and I'm just so, so saddened by that, Jeff, because the union has done so, so, I mean, it's done a lot of good work for me in, in protecting my job, but but I get it, I get it. The unions, unions in general, but teacher unions for sure, um, there, are, there are a lot of problematic practices within the unions, but I think this is one where if, this, if live instruction was so important, then how come we are talking about putting a requirement on teachers before even talking about how to train teachers or prepare teachers for it. I but, mean, I want someone at the table, so at the bargaining table, making sure that we are not just rushing into putting more onto the shoulders of teachers without really thinking about the just holistic, comprehensive uh, impact of that on teachers. But, you know, by the time someone listens to this episode, this is probably already be sorted out. Like, I don't think this is a stance that the union is super super passionate about so you know we'll we'll see but got to hold on to something otherwise next thing you know teachers are just doing even more with with even less in the middle of a pandemic which is just ridiculous but man well that's Jeff. that's not the stance the union took and i i want to say i know you know i'm not an anti-union person but i'm deeply frustrated with our unions in this moment in particular because they're not saying hey Here's what good education looks like. Here's what teachers need in order to be able to do that in this context. They're just saying, no, we're not doing this, this fundamental thing that is going to be necessary for a whole swath of students to really learn almost anything this fall, right? And to, and to entrench some huge equity gaps because you know what rich kids in the suburbs are getting and then you know what poor kids are going to be getting in their, in their schools across the state, man. So I... I hear you, but like this was not the right stance, right? We needed a principal argument to be made, not just to like, no, we're not doing this. I think there's a lot more to it than just, no, we're not doing this. I mean, I'm just looking at the bargaining matters updates from my district uh, or from my union, I should say. I, I see a lot of bullet points in there about what teachers need in order to be effective. So I think this is just one thing that is is noteworthy, but I don't think it comes close to representing the holistic stance that you, the union, the CTA has right now at this moment. But we could go on and on about the CTA and about live instruction and all of that. Um, but we have another news story that we want to get to, Jeff. We have another lexicon term for today. And that term is peace out. Mm. Deuces. <laughs> Deuces. Yeah. See ya. And that is what um, many school systems are saying to standardized tests. So this is uh, a story that we picked up from the Washington Post by Valerie Strauss, who um, has done a lot of lot of great reporting on education. And she basically laid out the different ways that standardized testing has started to fade away during this pandemic. Now, standardized testing, of course, is once was once a staple in American schooling, and it seems to be swiftly losing its prominence this past spring with the permission from the uh, education department. K-12 school districts across the country did something that seemed impossible and unthinkable for like the last 20 years, which is canceling the annual high stakes standardized tests. And of course these tests were canceled because of the COVID-19 crisis and the shift to distance learning and just like all the, the messiness of the spring. But this uh, de-escalation of testing seems to also be politically friendly. Of course, the current 
president who shall not be named. Uh, he's never been a super loud advocate for standardized testing, and he's repeatedly said that his priority is looking at school choice and having alternatives to public school districts. And of course, um, Jeff, your your pal Betsy, she hasn't been a strong testing proponent. She's more focused on school choice, so-called. And even the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, um, he's he's seemed to distance himself from those protesting policies of the Obama administration. And even um, Georgia quote-unquote governor Kemp has said that, quote, current high-stakes testing regime is excessive. And he's promised to keep pushing an initiative in the state legislature to eliminate four of Georgia's eight end of course exams. And of course, this isn't just something that's happening in K-12. We see many colleges moving towards having the SAT and the ACT as just optional. And back in May, the University of California system announced that it would phase out the SAT and the ACT testing requirements over several years. And some members of the Board of Regents have said that these tests not only aren't helpful in creating diverse student bodies, but that they're actually racist. All right, so we are looking at a wave of standardized tests being canceled or phased out. And even in Washington State, the Supreme Court recently decided to allow graduates from American Bar Associated uh, accredited law schools who registered to take the bar exam. Um, the Supreme Court has allowed them to go ahead and practice law without passing that test because of the impact that COVID has had on trying to even take the test. So Jeff, is this the beginning of the end for our obsession with standardized testing? No, no, it's not. I think it is a very important inflection point, right? It is a, a point where uh, the, the sort of previously inconceivable has all of a sudden become by necessity just a, the way of doing things, right? Like it would have been inconceivable a year ago to say, we're just going to have no standard, like no standardized high stakes testing across the country immediately, right? If someone would have thought you, you would have been crazy if you would have said that, um, you know, even less than a year ago. If you had said that in February of this year, Someone yeah. would have said, you're crazy, you're smoking something, right? Um, and, and now all of a sudden, the fact that we have been forced to change and the sky has not fallen and the world has not come to an end and children are still growing and, you know, learning and moving through life, right? We realize that, like, actually, these institutions that we have put so much time, energy and money into are not actually the lifeblood of school, right? And that was kind of, I think, how... Uh, the, the public had been made to think of what education is and what education is about is sort of this, this testing industrial complex. And I think the reality is that's not what's important uh, or not what's most important in school, right? The, the social experience, the um, connections and relationships and the, the aspects of learning that are about passions and interests and development um, are actually the lifeblood of school, right? Um, and so I think that that truth, that essential truth, has become crystal clear to anyone who you know who's who's not unbiased in the equation at this point. Um, also, I don't think the testing industrial complex has disappeared, right? Like these are major corporations with tons of resources who are definitely spending those resources to make sure that their industry does not collapse. So I think, you know, uh, they might lose some fights, but they're certainly not going to go down, uh, you know, uh, without swinging. 
And on top of that, I also think it is very important that we do not um, we do not make a rash decision about testing that has some very negative unintended consequences. So I certainly appreciate the critique of standardized testing that many people, including yourself, Manuel, um, offer on a regular basis. I also think people have not really grappled with the fact that standardized testing is a tool, right? It, is an, it, it can be used for good, it can be used for bad, but it is a tool and it is a type of tool that exists for a particular set of reasons, right? One of those reasons is to help us measure student performance against a standard, right? Against a particular expectation of where students should be at a particular point in time. And I think on its face, anyone can realize that that in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? If we want to say, you know, by, uh, you know, by the end of third grade, you should be able to do these things. We need to know if you can do those things, right? Um, that, that is in effect a standardized assessment, right? Um, the other side of this is standardized assessments actually are instruments that help us uncover inequities and racism that's baked into our system. And so in as much as folks like to make the anti-racist argument about you know, abolishing standardized testing, a lot of those arguments are being made with data sets that come from standardized testing, right? That actually tell us how, hey, how big are the gaps that we're trying to address here, right? So I think we need to be really careful about not throwing out the, the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, um, but it is a great inflection point. This is a real moment in time to say, you know, the things we thought we couldn't live without, we actually can. And so what should we do now that we have the opportunity to, to kind of think from scratch? Yeah. So nah, peace out to standardized <laughs> tests. I don't want to see them back, at least at the level that we've been doing them. I hear, I hear you on all those points about standardized tests being a way to, to measure students' progress against a standard, but there's just too much. For one, I mean, I don't think so the the arguments that that you pointed to about you know getting rid of standardized testing and, and abolishing that system yeah a lot of those arguments do point to data from standardized tests but i think even without that data we would know that that there's truth to this idea that measuring students against these standards and being focused on this test and punishing schools and holding them so-called accountable for uh, their their um, performance on these tests, that that's all sorts of problematic. Like, I don't think we even need these tests here to say that our school system is not doing right by our most marginalized students, particularly our black and brown students and indigenous populations. And I, I don't wanna see them back. I don't wanna see a return to so-called normal. I don't think, I mean, we had, heavy, heavy, heavy standardized testing for 20 years when we had standardized testing even before that. And I can't say that we have made huge gains with how we uh, school our, our most marginalized students. And we have many schools out there, lily white suburban schools that have through the roof test scores. And those students are not showing competence when it comes to basic things like racism in America. So, I mean, I think the standards themselves need to be rethought. I am fully in support of this idea of getting rid of all those old structures that I think haven't done well enough by our kids and considering something new. You yourself pointed to the idea of our mostly white schools and having some kind of way to hold them accountable for learning about race in America. Like we could rethink all of this and this is the moment to rethink all of that. So um, yeah, I don't wanna see standardized testing as we know it 
to come back. I don't want to see it back. I think we are surviving just fine without it. And um, a better world is possible if we just have the courage to let go of those things that we are that we feel are just so familiar and so essential to education. But yeah, yeah that's my take. I, I, I love that last statement you said there, Manuel, about a better world is possible. Because that to me is where is where I think there's a lot of synergy between what we're saying. I'm not saying go back to what we were doing before. I'm saying standardized tests are tools. They're really important tools that we need to understand things about our society, this deeply racist and equitable society that we live in. If we throw out the tools, we are going to be cutting ourselves off at the knees in a lot of the a lot of the equity driven work we want to do. That doesn't mean we go back and do exactly what we did before. I'm I'm 100 percent with you on that. New tools, Jeff. We're not getting rid of tools. We're getting rid of those and, tools and not, we'll just new, tools. not just new tools, but how we use them. Right. How you use the tool in this case with testing, I think, is actually almost more important than which tool you are using. All right. So unions and standardized testing, I believe we could go on and on and on about that. And I am confident in saying that our listeners or our viewers also have pretty strong opinions when it comes to the role of teachers unions during this pandemic and standardized testing in the future of that. So definitely uh, feel free to chime in if you're watching this on YouTube, drop some comments below. If you are listening on the podcast, I mean, jump on any of our Facebook, our Facebook page or our, our Twitter channel at AOTA show and, and let us know your thoughts about these topics so that we can keep this conversation going. All right. But up next, we have two very important guests. We have the two dope teachers in the building and we are about to have a conversation with them about this fight for educational justice. All right. So that's in our seminar coming up next. Stay tuned. Folks, thank you for listening to all of the above. If you appreciate what you're listening to or what you're watching, do consider becoming one of our supporters. If you head over to aotashow.com support, you'll see a list of different ways that you can make a contribution so that you can help us expand the show and keep it moving. Those methods include Venmo and Cash App. Our Venmo is at aotashow and our Cash App is dollar sign aotashow. Yeah, so we wanna give a big shout out to our founding founding contributors who have found us uh, via Venmo Cash App on our website there. They are Jen, Genevieve, and Anna Marie. And Ms. Riley. Thank you so much for your contributions to the All the Above nation and family here. We really appreciate your support. And folks, again, uh, you can join them. Help us bring you a great unstandardized take on education. It's at aotashow.com slash support. Thank you. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are very excited to have with us two incredible guests. One may even say two dope guests. We have the hosts of the Two Dope Teachers podcast coming straight out of Denver, Colorado. Um, we have Gerardo Munoz and Kevin Adams with us. Welcome, Gerardo and Kevin. It's great to have you here today. And yep. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Kevin and Gerardo. They're doing some great work on their show. We definitely want you to check it out. Um, Kevin and Gerardo are Denver public school teachers who co-host the podcast Two Dope Teachers. They describe themselves as hashtag unicorns, men of color who are classroom teachers, and most folks don't get us. 
Most systems in schools aren't set up for us. A lot of students are like us. We give voice to the voiceless every two weeks because, as Arundhati Roy argued, there is no such thing as the silent, only the silenced. They invite you to check out their podcast. It's available on Apple Podcasts and on their website, which is mrmunoz.org, and take a walk on the dark side with them. Well, gentlemen, we uh, both have had a chance to listen to your work. Um, I, f I feel like we are kindred spirits from afar, you know, on, on either side of the Rocky Mountains, keeping, keeping the flame of male educators of color, talking about interesting issues in education and helping to bring educator voice into the public discourse about our profession. So thanks for what you do. And we're excited to have you here on All the Above. Uh, no, thanks for having us. This is um, an incredible opportunity to just connect. Like, you know, when, when we started the podcast in, in 2015, you know, a lot of um, a lot of what we realized we needed was a way for teachers of color to connect when frequently we, <clears throat> we, we are in isolated spaces. A lot of times we're the only one or one of maybe only a couple of uh, staff of color on any given staff. And uh, and so just meeting up with y'all is just like, it's just affirmation of how special this space can be. So, you know, thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah, shout out. You know, and I, I agree with Gerardo, you know, it's it's like you, you, it's so wonderful to realize that there are other teachers, other unicorns out there, right? Because yeah. like when you're going through life as a unicorn, and people are like, you don't exist. Unicorns don't exist, right? I mean, but we kids, heard of them. Kids draw <laughs> unicorns and they think about <laughs> unicorns, you know, all the time. But 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 like when you're a unicorn and you find other unicorns, you're like, yes, yes. This we is exist. We exist. As as uh, our, our our friend Jose Jose Wilson uh you know says, uh, you know, we out you, right? Yeah, we are. <laughs> we are. We're here, yeah. so yeah, four unicorns in one place. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is incredible. Look out, y'all. We exist. For sure. Dope, well, all right, so it's summer break and y'all are two veteran educators and I don't know how many years specifically you've been in the classroom, but I could be confident, I think, in saying that the 2019-2020 school year is one year that was unlike any other year um, that any of us have experienced really. And now that it's summer break and we are uh, at least, you know, about a month removed from the distance learning of the spring, I'm wondering if y'all could share with us maybe a little bit about how this school year has, has maybe taught you something different or helped you um, look at what you do and look at your practice differently, considering that, you know, you've had so many years of experience already, but this year was such a such a wild year. So what are some of your, I guess, takeaways from, from what we've experienced? You know, I think probably the biggest takeaway is that like authenticity, the realness of like my practice that, that like they're, they're like, and I've, I've always flirted with this idea, but I think I'm becoming more and more committed that there can't be a separation between my classroom and the rest of the world. Right. It is like everything that happens, you know, and I think we are encouraged by districts and administrators to be like, we can only, and we even say this, you know, I can control what happens in my four walls. Right. But I think we have to, I've, I've realized throughout this that I've got to let those what's happening beyond those four walls really in and permeate my classroom because it already is right. It's already influencing all the interactions 
And so, you know, from COVID-19, the quarantine back in March to, you know, today and the uprisings, I just see an urgency to just make everything as real and authentic for my students as possible, you know, and, and I, I want to see us blur the lines of like, what it means to be a teacher, what it means to be a student even more, you know, because like, I think we, we've gotten to this place where we've crossed more into each other's homes, right? You know, um, we're starting to realize more and more about the way people live, you know, and I hope during the time of the uprising right now that, you know, a lot of our white colleagues, you know, are, are really taking serious and, and open to listening to the voices, right? Because it's easy to say, you know, the police are racist and they're the problem and that's where systematic racism lies. But, um, you know, I think it's evident that, you know, if we're in a school working, we are part of the problem too. We are just, um, as syst you know, systematic racism is just as much a part of our institution as it is the police department or any other institution out there. Um, and so I think it's just critical for us to be authentic and address the issues that our kids are facing um, boldly and courageously. Uh, that's so well said. And, <clears throat> you know, I want, I want to shout out Kevin because he has persisted in a leadership role at our school. Um, he's a teacher leader. Uh, it's one of the you know, kind of innovative ideas we have here. You teach some classes, but you also do some coaching and evaluation. And, you know, I think that um, he, he's just been kind of a rock um, in trying to, you know, guide us through this process. And, it, and it's been really, um, it's been really tough. Um, man, that question. Um, I guess the, just to, you know, and, and everything you said, Kev, um, but I guess for me, there's a couple of things that have really come up. The first thing is that tomorrow is not guaranteed, right? Um, we left out uh, on March 13th um, for an extended spring break. You know, the district that said we're going to take three weeks off, you know, we'll be back on April 7th and, you know, and we'll just, you know, we'll kind of go from there. And so I think it didn't quite sink in because, um, you know, I've, I've been teaching, um, to your point, Manuel, um, I've been teaching, this is my 21st year. Um, and no. so, so I've seen stuff, man, I've seen stuff and you know, like there was the SARS scare, there's a foot and mouth scare there, there, there was the scare of different, um, you know, epidemics that never quite materializes as pandemics, at least not pandemics that impacted the U S <clears throat> so it's a part of me that was just kind of like, ah, this is, this is just going to be like SARS. It's going to be fine. We'll be back, you know, do your reading AP children. Cause we still have tests and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then for a lot of those kids, I didn't see them again. Right. Uh, you know, the, the access issues when it comes to remote learning, I think they've been really well publicized. Uh, the inequities, the digital inequities we have in our city are pretty pronounced, um, is one of the most gentrified cities in the United States. Um, you can really, you can really track engagement by zip code. Um, and so that points at systemic things. So I think that for myself in my practice, not just with my students, but also with my colleagues, also with my family, I've had to, I've had to engage it as if this is the last day I'm going to have with these people, right? Like if this is the last day, if, if I engage every student as if this is the last moment that I have with them, how different will that engagement be? Can I, to Kevin's point, 
be in that moment that that kind of pushes these um that pushes these uh the, these kind of the interrogates these boundaries between you know being a teacher and being a supportive mentor and being a a coach and those kinds of things and being able to respond to a need that's there um i've realized that normal wasn't good enough it's not good enough it never was it never will be and um while i would like <laughs> i'm I have an anxiety disorder, so I would like a little bit of predictability in my professional life. I would like to know, you know, some things coming up. Um, at the same time, I think we've got to poise ourselves for an opportunity to come to the table with a different conversation. Um, I've been in my studies. Uh, you know, I, I, I took a 20-mile run this morning. There's not much you can do on a 20-mile run except for listen to stuff. And so I, I listened. I think I finished the entire 1619 podcast, the whole thing um on this run and um and it's just like it's just crystallizing so much if you've listened to it, it's just like you you know it gives meaning to it gives intellectual meaning to the phrase black lives matter because you can see literally if black lives had mattered in 1619 then a lot of the oppressive systems that we have today wouldn't persist it wouldn't disproportionately impact um our black brothers and sisters so um, I, I've learned that I'm hella annoying, um, when you gotta be around huh. much. Uh, so you know, that, that's why Ke Kevin won't always park next to me in the lot or sit. Uh, I, wish, I wish I could park. I'm, I'm counting the days till I can park next to you. I know. Now, now it'll be like that. Now he won't avoid me at staff meetings because I always get him in trouble. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just been a really interesting thing. And then, you know, you know, where's our creative muscle? Like, where are we, where are we expressing ourselves creatively? Um, Kevin's a musician. He wrote our, um, our intro music. And, you know, I think he's had that time to, to just mess with the guitar and, you know, put things together. And, you know, I'm experimenting a lot with just the things that I don't typically have time for. Um, and just trying to like bring that kind of testimonial into this moment. But um, it's why, I mean, we've had two, two straight wild years um, in yeah. DPS. Last year we were on strike um, and right. we went on strike in February. And, um, and that was, that was definitely a moment. And, um, you know, and I just remember, <laughs> I just remember saying at the beginning of this year, well, at least we won't be going on strike this year. Yep. It should yep. be a normal year. It should and, be pretty uh, normal. Yeah. You never, I've learned that's, a, I guess that's my last takeaway is never say that. Yes. Say yes. That. Yeah. It was your fault. It was your I'm fault. Glad, <laughs> I'm glad that's over. Now we can get back to normal. At least we won't have a global pandemic or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not going there. <laughs> yeah. That, so much of what you said resonates uh, for me, you know, working, I do my work uh, primarily, at least in LAUSD. And uh, we also had, you know, a major strike uh, yep. last yep. year and oh, came yeah. into this year, yeah, like, you know, at least yep. everything's going to be back to normal. And it was an even crazier year, right? So um, I am firmly in the camp of not uh, counting my chickens before they hatch uh, when it comes to school anymore, at least. For sure. Um, but also so much of what you both said, I think, uh, struck a chord with me because, you know, as, as educators, Manuel and I, uh, you know, I think a lot of the reason that, that all the above exists is wanting to step into the kind of public sphere of discussion about education with, with our voices and with the voices of educators, with the voices of educators of color, of male educators of color in a space that is in, in too many ways, uh, you know, all white or 
primarily white and in a profession like where certainly, <laughs> right, and in a profession where certainly men are are underrepresented overall, right? And uh, and so you know, I think we're we're wondering about your own kind of bit of your story and how you made the decision to kind of step into that public space as well. And also, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the significance of this moment, because we have governors and state superintendents and whatnot, you know, reinventing school or trying to figure out how to reinvent school uh, as we speak. And the importance of educator voice in this moment is maybe greater than ever. So I uh, would love to hear your thoughts about uh, about that, gentlemen. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I think going back to like why the podcast started or what, what, what inspired us to, to use our voices is like, I think, uh, you know, me and Gerardo were having these conversations after staff meetings um, consistently, you know, and as a teacher of color, you go into these staff meetings and, and you hear things, you know, when data's rolled out and people talking about students and, and, and just sharing their perspectives about causes and why things happen, you know? And so you hear things like, well, you know how these kids are or those kids don't really care. These kids don't really belong in our school or, you know, even like worse comments about the students, you know? Um, but I think kind of, you hear these comments and you kind of think about the people that you know, that you've grown up with, the relationships that you have with these students. And you're like, no, I think it's something different. You know, I talked to this kid and he's really good at this and he really knows this and he could do blah, 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 yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and and me and Gerardo would have these conversations where it's like, did you hear that? Did that make sense to you? Are you thinking what I'm thinking, you know? And like, we'd come out and like, so we'd confirm each other's thinking. We'd be like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. I am thinking the right way. There's something wrong with them. And so I think we kind of spent time hashing those out and we were listening to some other podcasts and we just began to talk. And I was like, you know, we podcasts? should- what other podcast? You well, gotta tell them. Denzel Washington <laughs> is the greatest actor of all time. Period. That's the podcast. That's that the podcast that we were we were like obsessed with. Still, we would like we would hijack like the first ten minutes of a department meeting. Talk about hey hey, did you hear the episode? You know what said? And then Kamal said this, and then it was like and and so yeah. So I mean, it was definitely like they, I mean the the brothers were funny, but they were talking about you know really important um, issues of representation. Um, and you know Denzel Washington's role in in elevating um, black actors and black yeah. stories and that kind of thing. Sorry, I I, ju I just had to have you like no, <laughs> but, but no, you bring up a good point, right? Of this connection of the way they were talking about their profession, their craft. I think we were having the same conversations, you know, as teachers of color, and I think as people of color are having, you know, in various you know, sectors of a variety of industries that are predominantly white, right? They're like, oh, we I have these them. conversations. This is what it's like for us. We have to do this, you know? And uh, and so we were like, well, let's, let's start to put it out. Let's record it. Let's record these conversations, you know? This could be a podcast. And so we, we started to record episodes and, 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 and just, you'd get responses from people and, and, and the more and more you just found that it was valuable to have your voice out there, right? As, as two teachers of color. And I think we found that there was, there was people who were interested in hearing what we had to say, you know, and it's that perspective that you talked about, Jeff, like this idea of, um, you know, 
there are so many people talking about education and rarely is it our voice, you know? Rarely is it the voice of teachers and rarely is it the voice of male teachers of color. You know, it tends to be politicians and people who are very removed from schools talking about education, you know? And so I think what we offered is like, we were there every day, we're doing it. Like most of our podcast is about things that like happened that day. That day. You know, and I think it's stuff that people can relate to. People can go through the microaggressions that we experience, is, uh, the, the highs that we see our kids accomplish, right? The, the risks that we watch them take and the risks that we take as educators and working with our colleagues to, to really discuss issues of race, class, and privilege as they play out in our classrooms. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that the... So the, the really, I don't know why this moment stands out for me the most, but the moment that kind of stood out for me the most was when we were contacted um, by our statewide uh, union. Um, you know, one of their organizers reached out to us and said, we listen to your stuff religiously. When there's a new episode, it's like playing in the office and we love it and we want to meet and, and talk with you. So uh, Colorado Education Association has played a really big role in, um, in boosting you know, what we've done. And I think like, um, I think Kevin hinted at this. I'm always surprised when like people care what I have to say about things. Um, like I I've joked that <laughs> I've joked that my memoir is probably going to be called, Hey, wait, I wasn't finished yet. <laughs> or, you know, or, Hey, wait, wait, no, I got more to say, <laughs> you know, things, uh, things y'all you, don't care about. Right. Um, and so I think that was a piece that was really interesting for us to see, um, the listenership that, that we developed. Um, and, and that's just been really humbling. And, you know, people who recognize our voices when we go places, it's, it's wild, like never thought that we were, we we're going to be doing this. Um, I think for me too, the value of having Kev as a partner on this and as like a partner and friend in my school building is that white supremacy is insidious and it is infectious, right? It is contagious you can catch white supremacy. Yep. I spent the first 10 years of my career, um, you know, recovering from white supremacy. And, you know, as it turns out, it's like the H1N1 flu. There's no cure. There's no vaccine. There's no, like, there's, all there is is treatment, right? Um, and so what you find yourself getting pulled towards is a, some of the dehumanizing conversations that occur between uh, teachers about students, yep. even like, I've never even been comfortable with people making fun of students, you know, behind their backs. Like, it's just not something that feels humanizing to me. You know, I'm totally okay making fun of my coworkers, but, um, <laughs> but um, you know, and, and you start sort of, you know, that, that gets into your head. And then, you know, to, to Kevin's point, you get to a point where as a person of color, even an intellectual like person of color, you question whether your insights on a student are correct because as uh, the writer Tamim Ansari once wrote, uh, this was the guy who wrote uh, Destiny Disrupted, A History of the World Through Islamic Eyes, one of my favorite books uh, that I've ever read. He's Afghan American and he was, he was writing, a, he, he had served on a, on a textbook um, adoption committee or no, he was authoring a textbook in Texas and he was the only person of color on the, on the uh, entire panel. And he said, 
mine was my opinion was such the minority that it was indistinguishable from error and that was where i was when i met kevin where it was kind of like none of this stuff that i think is true like i studied ethnic studies and history in in college i came out of college feeling like i really knew this stuff and it just took a couple of years of teaching to completely like cause insecurity and uncertainty in my own beliefs that I'd worked hard to like, you know, arrive at. And so if you are not careful and if you don't have, you know, kindred spirits like, like my, my three fellow unicorns here, um, you, you find yourself playing into these white supremacist notions that infect the educational system. And so, you know, and, and the process of decolonizing is a lifelong process, right? Um, but, but that's probably the thing that has been most beneficial for me is that I constantly get to check myself. I constantly get to say, no, you're right. No, you're right. No, this is true. And um, to the credit of our school, um, we've got some people on staff who are, who are really, they're good white folk, right? Um, and they're, and you know, I had, I had offered an insight to a white teacher who said, you know what, actually, I never thought of it that way. Thank you for giving me that new way to look at it. And that just like, that was just validation. I was like, okay, wait. I have more. <laughs> got more. You want to hear more of what I got to say? I can tell you more things. Yeah. Uh, I tend to go overboard like Jay-Z. So. Uh, yeah. You know, and I, I think those are like really important points, Gerardo. And, and, and like, I think about this in the context of today and how education is being revamped, like going back to the question, um, you know, and, and these politicians and all these people talking about, you know, what's working and, you know, how easy it is for us as teachers, if you don't have like a core philosophical perspective on it, to buy into some of this stuff um, as to why kids didn't engage in remote learning, right? To maybe, you know, they don't care about it, right? Or, you know, it's about this situation or that situation speak to the people, find out what their needs are, you know? And I think this goes back to my original point. It's like, how do we get this, this community schooling where it's all of us together building a school, then top down and them saying, here's what you get, you know? And so like as schools kind of plan on how do we reopen or what does school look like? What's the future of schooling? I think it has to be a conversation that's not in a room it's not isolated to school board members. It's not isolated to uh, school administrators. It is a conversation that involves all community members, right? And, and I think it has to be led by the people who are the experts. And I think the experts in schools, the people who know the most about education, right at any particular moment, any day and time, are students because they spend the most time in a classroom. So they can tell you what they like and what they don't like. And then I think the other group of people that can tell you about what works in education are teachers, right? Because we also are spending our time in the classroom. And so I hope that the politicians are listening to the teachers, listening to the students, listening to the families and communities, because I do think like we've, we've tried to build this school in a way that's like meeting these ideals that aren't related to anybody who is really involved in the system, right? It's like, what, what's going to benefit the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, 
right? What do the kids need to know to become hard workers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think that's the other thing that we've discovered about, um, about our work on this podcast um, as we've continued as, um, as practitioners, we've kind of seen our identities morph into the identities of public intellectuals, right? This is what Henry Giroux writes about when he talks about the, the ways that educators can educate for liberation is to, is to be that support for communities who need clarification on things. What's going on? How do my taxes work? How does this thing work? What's going, what do you think about what's going on in the school board in these, in these things? And so, you know, I think that's been a piece that's been really interesting. And as our listenership developed, um, students and parents and school leaders um, found our work, um, you know, to the point where, you know, uh, there we've had board members who have, you know, as part of their election campaign wanted to come on the show when our superintendent was a candidate to become superintendent. She, you know, reached out and said, hey, you know, I'd love to sit down with you guys and talk a little bit about what's going on. And then we have students as young as like sixth and seventh grade who are like, we heard your show. Mm -hmm. And they get so excited. And so, you know, it kind of thinks about that traditional fourth wall that sometimes exists between um to the the teacher's identity and and the and the students um you know we keep that stuff quiet we don't tell anybody about them you know and you know kids don't even know my age and like that kind of thing um you know i feel like breaking down that wall is critical in this new era because you know it isn't you guys need to do better it's we need to do better it's like how are you going to do well on that test how are we going to be successful in this unit and <clears throat> excuse me and if things don't go well it's like man we didn't um we were not successful on that last thing. So how can we put this back together? Um, I think these are conversations I've always had with my students because, you know, Loki, I didn't come out of a traditional, uh, you know, teacher prep program. I was an alternative license that, um, you know, was, was dragged out of a coffee shop and into a classroom. <laughs> and, um, and so for me, I'm kind of like, I'm just going to ask the students and I'm going to be nice to them. And, you know, I think that's kind of like, that's where I'm at. And then, and then along the way, revolutionary ideas, it's just uh. like, it's like I'm, I'm going to be kind to people because I have power over them. And I, and I'm just like, I actually, I don't know anything about like my mom is a retired teacher, but um, very different teacher than I was, you know, or than I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that's, I think that's kind of the the foundation of it all. It's like, all right, well, let's keep on engaging, um, you know, all of the quote unquote shareholders uh, in what's going on in, in our schools. So it's just been a really interesting and humbling experience. Like we, we have the amazing opportunity to, um, to co-host a keynote speaker for the uh, NEA's racial and social justice summit this summer. I don't think we're allowed to say who yet, um, but, but it's, uh, you know, these opportunities that keep coming to us and, and we just think that it has a lot to do with, there's a conversation, um, that we are aspiring to be a part of that you are a part of, um, that, that I think people want, people want that conversation. No surprise. Y'all have been dropping a, a, a ton of knowledge in terms of the importance of, uh, that educator voice, especially educators of color, and especially in a world where you have policymakers and politicians uh, thinking that they know what's best when really, um, to your point, like it's students first that that know what's best. We got to talk to them about their distance learning, you know, for example, uh, experience and, and what works for them. And at the same time, 
being an educator of color in the system, I mean, the institution is built on this, you know, white supremacist, like uh, oppressive, oppressive framework and being in the system could be really, really like enraging. I know for me as a, as a teacher of color, like, you know, there's so much about my experience that I'm just like, you know, how much is it is what I'm doing right by the students and how much of it is me just, you know, being part of this system and, you know, putting a face to the system. And especially at this uh, in the, at this moment in time, given the the uh, summer uprising and, and given the pandemic and all of that, I think that it could be especially maddening being a, a educator of color and seeing how these things impact our our most marginalized populations. And one thing that I appreciate about y'all's show is that like you go hard for for students who are so often just deemed to be like in need of being fixed and in need of like you know uh, being taught the how to speak right and how to write correctly and get with the program and y'all go hard for those students and I'm, I'm wondering you know as educators of color especially going into another school year and we don't know what the future holds in terms of from distance learning to you know who knows what the um you know the election season and the continued uprising is going to bring to us um i'm wondering how do y'all maintain your sanity like for lack of a better word like how do you deal with the just the the dynamic of trying to do what's best for your students and, and for yourself and then also dealing with just the onslaught of everything from from microaggressions to straight up in your face white supremacist thought about what students need to be doing right now yeah i, I don't i, I think there's, i think there's not great evidence that we've maintained our sta our sanity but um hmm. but but if you think so <laughs> now go, go ahead give <laughs> no i mean i i love that question you know because it, it really does come down to it but i think you know it's, it's what we're all dealing with as people of color in a white supremacist society all the time it is, you know, and I, and I, and I try to think back, you know, did I ever live my life in a way where I wasn't constantly asking those questions? And I guess it was when I'm around like all black people, right? Like when I'm around my people, I never, those questions are like, how, how are they going to react if I say this or if I do this or, uh, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, thinking about how do I maintain my sanity, um, Gerardo, being able to <laughs> come to him and vent, you know, on those days, you know, being there to listen to him vent, you know, us venting together about stuff. Sometimes it's just like, it's one of the things I missed, um, you know, uh, going into his room, eighth period on a Friday, when we both had planned and just being able to like, uh, we should be working right now, but we are going to just talk for like an hour. And and it was just pure conversation, you know, about like whatever is going on in life. But but that's how I try to do it. But also like maintaining my own humanity, you know, taking time to do the things for me. Gerardo mentioned these creative endeavors. I love it. You know, playing the guitar, um, writing, whatever, you know, exercising. But those little things that I think remind us of our humanity, my principal, uh, our new principal is a yoga teacher, you know, like a master yoga instructor. Oh, really? I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, no, she's like a master yoga instructor. And she's like tied it into our meetings. Like, so we had a yoga break. And so look forward to that, man. It's dope, oh, right? Dope. <laughs> I'm like, this is great stuff. But I think like tying our passion to the work makes me be able to get through it you know and as far as the microaggressions and the white supremacy i think that's just day to day you know i think that's what we're all dealing with 
um, as teachers. Um, and so you just keep pushing through, you know, and, and you find ways. And I think me and Gerardo were talking to someone else about like uh, some young teachers about like finding your, you know, your, your crew. And, and, and you got to And your crew might be small, but that's those are the people who, you know, have your back. You can close the door and you can cuss about people who you can close the door and cry, who you can close the door. And they're like, yo, I got you. It's no judgment. Um, I don't see you as any weaker or I see you as strong, you know, because I think as teachers of color, particularly men, and you guys can probably relate to this, like. I don't want to, nobody should ever see me cry, you know, and that's, that's part of like this toxic masculinity that I've been raised with, but it's also something that's protected me throughout, you know, and so going back to my students, what do they have and, and, and why do I bet, you know, because I was them and people try to get rid of this stuff. And like, I, I've all believed like, these are the elements that have made me thrive, right? This is what made me successful. This is what distinguishes me from other folks. And so like when, with that realization, it's like, I gotta make sure my students understand and that I never extinguish that flame within them. You know, I only flan it, fan it and make it brighter, right? I mean, that, they, yeah, I, I agree that that question is, um, it's it's deep and it's so important to kind of think about because I think, you know, I kind of, I, I made it, I made a joke about, you know, my own sort of levels of sanity through this whole process. Um, you know, and I, and I don't mean to make light of it. Um, I, I have had to do a lot of, you know, important soul searching in terms of how I've addressed issues of toxic masculinity in my own life and how I've addressed um, issues of mental health in my life and, and those kinds of things that are pretty, you know, significant. Um, I'm not even sure I know how to cry anymore. Like that, it's just like, that's just kind of the world that, that we kind of go through. Um, you know, as, you know, uh, I think the I think the I have two guiding kind of philosophies that sort of, I always try to come back to, um, especially when things are so unpredictable, like the very, the very things that um, keep me coming back to this job aren't guaranteed. The, the face-to-face -face engagement with students is not guaranteed. Uh, the working towards meaningful change and seeing the results of, of our labor, um, when I say our labor, ourselves as teachers and our students and how we work together and like grow in confidence and, and discover new ideas, um, both from outside sources and within ourselves, you know, those are all things that I can no longer depend on right now. Like one of the hardest things about remote learning in, in Denver public schools was that I just like all the kids would leave their cameras off and I'm not going to yell at them for having their cameras on. I don't know what their surroundings are like and I don't know how they feel about their surroundings That's and how right. they feel about their appearances. That's and I know right. it caught, you know, I have a 15 year old daughter who, you know, there's a lot of anxiety about engaging your peer, like seeing your peers and yep. seeing where they live and seeing who's there. My sixth graders were less worried about that. Like they, they, I was meeting their pets and like, you know, seeing the goofy games that they were creating and all that kind of stuff. But, but when you don't have those things that create that wonderful intellectual and spiritual ecosystem that is a classroom you have to like search deeper for the things that matter to you and so like for me um there's there's that great saying um 
I'm not an industry artist. I'm an artist in the industry, right? And so, you know, we recognize that there is a system of public education that functions in this country and it has roots and it has structures and it has purposes and it has assumptions. And so we have to be on guard um, against the way those assumptions will, you know, kind of seep into our being. Um, and then I also have this kind of burn it down attitude where it's just kind of like, you know, everything that I'm doing is for the eventual abolition of education as we know it, um, of schooling as we know it, I should say. Yep. And so what are the opportunities for disruption that are in front of me today? And where can we empower young people to uh, feel like they can be a disruptive force in this um in, in this white supremacist capitalist patriarchal system of, of education and schooling. Um, and then the, like the last thing I think, so, so, I mean, so those are, that's always my North star. It's always like, you know, this, this is a system that systemically um, has not served um, communities of color in any, in any positive way, historically speaking in the big picture. Uh, now all of us represent some level of educational success, right? Um, you know, I, I was I was a little bit of a problem as a middle school kid, um, but you know, but I but I think that I th I think that we've all on the balance been successful in education. We got to check that right, um, and so you know, like looking at the things that are toxic for our students and and just facing those on a daily basis is really important. Um, and then you mentioned like, so we have our, our little crew that, that we call the pedagogical terror squad. Um, nice. <laughs> and um, you know, and we, we have a group chat and you know, there it's, it's five of us uh, or four of us, four of us. Yes. Yeah, four of yep, us. Four of us. It's, it's four of us, um, you know, fellas who, you know, it's two deans of culture and then the two of us and, you know, so, some of us while out on that group chat, but it's, um, you know, we were sharing songs of encouragement with each other during the last quarter of the year. And then one of the, one of the guys screenshotted this uh, article about, you know, the, the 2009 Boston Celtics and how they still have a group chat that they maintain. Like yeah. nowadays we all watch basketball together. Like I'm a, a huge, Kevin and I are huge yeah. Nuggets fans. Yeah. Um, and so we hope that doesn't ruin anything over there on, on, uh, on your coast. Uh, <laughs> all good over here. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I think it is, I think it is about finding your North star and finding who you are in this work yeah. and, um, and really just, you know, what did Talib Kweli say? Like, you know, find, make sure your crew is as tight as you. Cause when they start falling out, they're going to take you down too. That's right. Um, so, uh, you know, finding that cruise is really important. And, and I, you know, I feel like even though we're not even in the same time zone, I feel like this is a crew right here, right? Like this is a place where we can connect and support each other. Cause we just need it. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of want to name one thing though, um, for myself. Um, so, you know, Manuel, you asked about the microaggressions and, and I have to say that, you know, as a person who is not black, um, I, I, I get spared a lot of those microaggressions. And so for me, it's more of like the empathy that I feel and like how I step in when I see these things. Cause they're, they're almost never directed at me. Like the, the types of microaggressions I get are like, wow, your English is so good. Yeah. And 
it's kind of like, well, I should hope so. It's my first language, you know? And, um, you know, but, but I think that there's a really insidious anti-blackness that's happening in all corners of our society right now. And as a person who is not directly being attacked by those dynamics, I think it's even more important that I, that I remain conscious and like name things, but also recognize that I have the privilege of not necessarily experiencing the same thing that, that any of you are experiencing, right? And so I think that's something for me personally that I think is important to name, um, that, you know, yeah, it happens, but, um, but you know, some of the things that, um, that I think that Kevin could say, uh, you know, would, would, would be much more significant than what I've kind of experienced. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And I think it's, um... You know, I think it's safe to say that for that question of how you maintain your sanity, I, I think it's safe to say there's a lot of folks out there, you know, whose names you might not even know who who go to your show as their like assurance that they're not they're not looking at things wrong. Like this is like the injustices they see play out on a day to day in their schoolhouse or whatever state, whatever city they might be working in. Like, you know, they see that and they question themselves and then they go to your show and they realize like, no, I'm not, I'm not the one who's looking at this wrong. Like this is, like, this so. is you know, so, um, you know, even though, you know, y'all didn't say it, I think that's a big part of the answer for a lot of folks is going to shows like yours, uh, yours in particular and realizing like, no, this is, there's a lot of problems that, that we need to address and a lot of problems and a lot of systems that we need to dismantle if we're really going to do right by the kids, because, you know, I really think about, you know, the point of like having a crew and, you know, I have my little crew in my uh, high school where I teach mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. we close the doors and we have honest discussions about things that happen. And, and there's so many things that it seems like we're the only ones that see it. Yep. Um, and I think about what about those teachers who, especially teachers of color who might be maybe the only teacher of color at their school, whether it be a, you know, elementary school in some rural area or, or a big public high school somewhere. Kevin, that and, reminds me of Robert, right? The the dude from yep. Springs who yep. we met. This was a guy, 30 year veteran, black mm -hmm. man, had, had always, every single year of his career, been the only black teacher and the only teacher of color. The first time man. he met us, he's like, I've wow. been waiting for y'all, you know? <laughs> and so, I mean, so to your point, that's right. And it, it makes me think of another funny story. Uh, Kevin, remember when all nine teachers of color at our school were at the same table at PD? It was the oh, greatest wow. day ever. Oh, man. That was so <laughs> good. So there's like, so good. there's the two of us. There, we have three Colombian teachers who are here on, on work visas. Um, and then there was a Jamaican sister who yep. teaches math yeah. and who is no nonsense. Like she's incredible. She's the greatest. Um, and so we're all at this table together. We were loud and people were just kind of like, what is what, what's going on over there? We're like, Oh man, it, it spilled out. It spilled out. <laughs> wow. They made seating charts after that. I'm sure after that, they started sitting people by department or something. We, they I, they actually, wish they had, I wish they would have made some seating uh, charts. Oh, yeah. I like, no. I My favorite thing in a staff meeting is to show out like the students. That is like the greatest thing in the world is to show out like the students yep. at a staff meeting. Oh yeah. Well, no, and I think actually you credit see, like people, they're, they're like, I don't know how to react to that. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know you don't. I know that's your, that's your biggest weakness. Yeah. Is you don't know how to react to students. And credit, credit to our coworkers. Like after that, more of them actually wanted to be at that table. Yeah, so, they were like, so, oh. You know, so, you know, maybe it was okay. <laughs> wow. 
Well, uh, gentlemen, that is a hilarious uh, anecdote to, <laughs> to end on, I think. And um, I also want to just mark this day in history because not only are there uh, four unicorns uh, on your screen at one time, uh, yes. folks out there in the All the Above audience, um, but also I believe this marks the very first time we had a quote from Talib Kweli's uh, The Manifesto. Um, that was like 1999-ish, yeah. if I, if I remember correctly. Show. It was on the Lyricist Lounge Show. Yeah, man, that is that's old school. And uh, you know, I got my I got my Bronx map yeah. behind me right here, so I have a, a special appreciation for the uh, for the Terror Squad that's and that's uh, right. yeah. you know. Yeah. Much love I mean, to my to my people back in the Bronx. I, I, I woke up. I was seeing the Terror Squad this morning, <laughs> doing my little chores in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, gentlemen, in all seriousness, we want to we want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, really appreciate your work. Um, their their podcast is Two Dope Teachers. That's T O O, uh, Two Dope Teachers. You can find them on Twitter at Two Dope Teachers. You can find them on Apple Podcast and on their website, uh, which is MrMunoz.org. You got to spell out the Mister MrMunoz.org. Check it out. Uh, some great work coming out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, thanks, gentlemen, for being with us today. And folks, next up is today's Class Dismissed. Stay tuned. Thanks for having us. Thanks. It was great, really enjoyable. Thank you, brothers. All right, folks, now it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to give shout-outs to folks doing great things in the world of education. Jeff, what do we got for today? Well, man, well, we got a nice feel-good story today uh, coming uh, out of, you know, the major district uh, right here in our backyard, Los Angeles Unified School District. And, of course, it's summertime, and what better thing could happen with kids over the summer than reading a good book? And, uh, you know, in these crazy times of COVID, uh, the district has realized that, you know, we... we suffered a bit in the spring in terms of learning and wanted to find a way to bring, you know, both uh, some, some summer learning opportunities and kind of the joy of discovery of books to young people. And thanks to a partnership with, uh, with Snapchat, uh, with Snap Inc. Um, founder and CEO, um, the, the district has partnered uh, with Snapchat to bring what's called the A-List Book Club to all of the students across the district, that's uh, more than half a million students, um, who can access uh, free books, can access um, videos with celebrities like Alicia Keys or Russell Westbrook talking about some of their favorite books um, in you know kind of short, easily digestible videos, um, and just a, a great way I think to um, you know invest in the community, help kids continue to kind of grow and stretch their minds over the summer while we figure out what school is going to look like in the fall. And if folks locally want to learn more about the program, you can actually go to the website, which is achieve.lausd.net slash A-List Book Club. So A-List Book Club, all one word there uh, to learn more. Dope, dope. And of course, we want folks to be lifelong learners. And um, your story, your shout out right there makes me think about No Names Book Club, uh, which is not just for kids, but for adults as well. And uh, No Name is a rapper for those who aren't familiar. And she's super dope. And 
Uh, no Names Book Club is a in-person and online community where each month two books by uh, authors of color are highlighted and it's a um, collective learning in critical theory and uplifting the voices of people of color and No Names Book Club raises funds to send the monthly uh, book selections to correctional facilities across the country too because we know too many too many folks who are incarcerated right now don't have access to uh, critical learning materials. So it does that too. So shout out to No Name. I believe it's nonamebooks.com. Uh, we'll throw that link under this video and on our website as well. But uh, yeah, keeping that learning going for, for the youths, but also for the adults, um, super, super dope. So shout out to everybody involved in all of that. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've appreciated what you've been watching or, or listening to. And if you take a moment to rate us and review us, we will very much appreciate it. And of course, all of our stuff, all of our previous episodes and content can be found at our website, aotashow.com. All right, we'll see you next time.